Welcome back, brothers and sisters, as we continue our journey through the book of John. And today we're in John chapter 3, verse 5, which I have titled, Rebirth, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Here's a conversation that seems extremely incoherent to any person, since this is also the first. Jesus makes a clear distinction between the material versus the spiritual. As Nicodemus was an individual knowledgeable about the Old Testament teachings, this distinction provides a clear revelation of the objective state of an individual who pursues spiritual oneness with his Creator. Jesus brings the divine into the reality of the Nicodemus mortal state, a pursuit that at one time only seems an illusion based on a subjective action. Jesus brings the reality of God into the existence of our mortal state. R.C. H. Lenski in his book The Interpretation of St. John's Gospel writes, Without a connective, Jesus takes up the remark of Nicodemus regarding the impossibility of physical rebirth and carries this to its ultimate limit. Even if it were possible, a rebirth in the flesh would, pro would produce only flesh. Jesus formulates this as a general principle that is self-evident and final in its clearness and then sets aside it the opposite, the spirit birth. Again, as a principle with the same evident finality. Moreover, the parallelism of the two principles once more brings out the necessity. Jesus has twice stated that only by this latter birth can a man enter the kingdom. That born of the flesh is flesh, and that born of the spirit the spirit. D.A. Carson in his commentary on the book of John offers this view. Although the full construction born of water and of spirit is not found in the Old Testament, the ingredients are there. At a minor level, the idea that Israel, the covenant community, was properly called God's sons in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 6, and in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. They all provide at least a little potential background for the notion of God's begetting people. Enough, Brown thinks, that it should have enabled Nicodemus to understand that Jesus was proclaiming the arrival of the eschatological times when men would be God's children. A far more important is the Old Testament background of water and spirit. The spirit is constantly God's principle of life, even in creation in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, chapter 6 verse 3, and in Job chapter 34 verse 14. But many Old Testament writers look forward to a time when God's Spirit will be poured out on humankind, as written in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. 
with the result that there will be blessing and righteousness and the inner renewal which cleanses God's covenant people with their idolatry and disobedience. When water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, its habitual refers to renewal or cleansing, especially when it is found in conjunction with spirit. This conjunction may be explicit or may hide behind language depicting the pouring out of the spirit. Most important of all is Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25 to 27, where water and spirit came together so forcefully, the first to signify cleansing of, from impurity, and the second to depict the transformation of heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. And it is no accident that the account of the Valley of the Dry Bones, where Ezekiel preaches and the Spirit brings life to dry bones, follows hard after Ezekiel's water spirit passage. The language is reminiscent of the new heart expression that revolve around the promise of the new covenant. Similar themes were sometimes picked up in later Judaism. Any birth from flesh produces only flesh. A stream never rises higher than its source. The fact is axiomatic and its statement is its proof. There is a contrast between the Greek used in flesh and spirit. Therefore, this determines the former does not refer merely to the human body, nature or connotation of weakness and morality but the flesh in its full opposition to the spirit reveals our sinful human nature. Thus, flesh includes also the human soul, the human psyche and the human spirit. For sin has its real seat in the immaterial part of our nature which uses the gross material part as its instrument. A hundred rebirths from sinful flesh, whether one is old or young, will produce nothing but the same sinful flesh and leave one as far as ever from the kingdom. Hence, this is no later Pauline theology, which the evangelist John puts into Jesus' mouth and is thus beyond the mind of Nicodemus. We meet the same thought already in Genesis 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall be not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And in Psalms chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And in Job chapter 14, verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. It is so simple that it is clear to any man who has the least idea of what flesh means. Jesus does not say that born of the water and spirit, but only that born of the spirit, although he refers to baptism. 
In this sacrament, the regenerator is not the water, but the spirit who uses this medium. Therefore, this also settles the question as to whether we must regard this second principle in holy, abstract way, that born of the spirit is spirit, or more concretely, that born of the spirit is spirit. The entire context decides for the latter, especially also the interpretative expression verse 8, 1, born of the Spirit, not of the Spirit. In addition, the other translation would produce a false contrast, namely that of human flesh and that of human spirit. Therefore, there is no such thing as birth of the human spirit. In English, we would say soul, apart from and in contrast with the human flesh. Only God's spirit produces a spiritual birth, a new nature and life, one that is spirit, the opposite of flesh. Underlying both axiomatic statements is the thought that the flesh, our sinful human nature, cannot possibly enter the kingdom, but that only the spirit, the new life and the new nature born of the spirit can do so. This do cast light on the kingdom itself, its nature, and the people who alone are partakers of it. As Christians today, we cannot deceive ourselves into a false economy that our proclamation of faith is sufficient. Christ makes it very clear there is a transformation of heart and soul that brings a person to full rebirth. What Jesus tells Nicodemus gives excellent insight into our faith. Jesus reveals that faith is a rebirth, which implies a complete transformation of the heart and spirit of an individual. There is no materialistic change as long as we exist in our mortal state. Our physical status remains, but our spiritual status morphosizes into a divine state that our objective psyche changes and reveals a new person. As individuals, this reality or experience does not provide any psychological inclination, but our subjective behavior becomes our display. It is what people around you observe and feel in your presence. You become the beacon through which our Lord Jesus Christ flows, and what people see is a mirror of our Savior. Our weaknesses burden us, and God knows and the yoke we carry, and it, it is God himself who carries it for us on the cross. A rebirth is far greater than the physical transformation, but a complete psychological, emotional, objective transformation that changes us an individual and nullifies the ardent attack of the world around us. We are aware but unaffected by its attempts to subjugate our faith and a focus away from God and the cross. Look at Christ as our Savior and the transforming power it, to place us steadfast, upright and armored against sin and degradation. Christ brings our rebirth and through the cross and His blood, 
we are given a new life. Thank you and God bless.